Well, hello, everyone. Usually this is my husband up here, but today you guys get me. <laughs> I, um, I told Matthew uh, probably about two months ago, well, I'll, I'll rewind a little bit before that. I knew I was supposed to speak today. I knew it. And so I was probably two months ago, I didn't want to. <laughs> I'm like, this is not the most comfortable thing for me to do. But I knew I had to speak today. And we were driving to a party or a dinner or something, and it's been on my heart for a couple days. And I said to him, hey, um, who's speaking on Mother's Day? Are you speaking? Are you getting a speaker to speak? Or you know, what, what, what's going on for Mother's Day? And he's like, um, and I said, because I want to do it. And I was like, oh, did that just come out? Because <laughs> I really, I'm like, I don't know. But I knew I needed to have the courage to just speak today. And that's what I'm actually going to be speaking on. Um, a lot of it towards the second half on bravery and courage and endurance. Um, and I knew that today I had this message for you. And what's been on my heart was actually two women from the Bible, Hannah and Jochebed, which Jochebed was Moses' mother. Um, I picked Hannah because that's Hannah's story is a little bit of something that Matthew and I have gone through in a somewhat similar little bit of infertility way. Um, and Jochebed, I aim to be like Jochebed. Like that woman had a plan. She had endurance. She had courage. And I'm like, can I just be Jochebed? You know, when I think of women in the Bible, that's the one that I'm like, she's who I want to be. So if you could just pray with me before I start. Dear Lord, I just thank you for today. I thank you for all the mothers here, Lord. Um, I pray that you just um, pour your love upon them. Give them a special blessing, Lord, today. Be with me as I speak, Lord. May my words be your words. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 24. I know it's a little bit of a lot for Hannah, what we're going through on the first part. I'm going to be in the NIV for, Han for Hannah, and for Jochebed, I'm going to be in the NLT, because I like the way that it said it differently for each story. So the NIV, if you want to turn there, and we're going to go ahead and get started. The birth of Samuel. Hannah, in your notes, is the mother who made a promise or a vow, promise or vow. So the birth of Samuel. As I'm reading, I'm going to be stopping a little bit in between and just kind of giving you a little bit of back history, um, kind of what Nikki said this morning. I love when I'm reading, I like to kind of know the history and what's happening in those verses. And so I want to kind of just keep you up to date with uh, those things too. So here we go. And forgive me on the first verse because I'm going to just wing it on these names. So here I go. There was a certain man from Ramathame, a Zophite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohim, and son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zufu, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up to went up from his home, his town, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hopini and Phineas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. 
I want to pause right there and just say that according to the law of Moses, Israelites weren't allowed to just worship God wherever they pleased, whomever they pleased, at a certain location, whatever it may be. They had to go to Shiloh, which is, um, you know, a certain spot that they had to go to, and they had to go at a certain time. So they wanted, they had to go do that. But the Bible writes down these priests' names because they were wicked priests, but Elkanah was a very godly man who, beside the fact of these priests being wicked, he gave his service and his love to the Lord and his sacrifice, despite who they were. That wasn't the point. He needed to do what he needed to do, even though they were wicked men. Um, uh, let's see. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. I find it interesting that he talks about that he loved Hannah, but to Peninnah, he just gave her portions to the sons and daughters and to her, but he loved Hannah. And despite um, uh, for Hannah, God had a purpose in closing her womb. He um, closed her womb for, uh, for Hannah, the pain of being childless and to accomplish something great in her life and in the whole plan of salvation. And um, even though things were hard for Hannah, that her womb was closed, he was still in charge. And I'm sure that she probably cried out many times like, God, what are you doing? But she knew he was in charge. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, which is the other wife, Peninnah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and she could not eat. This is the part in your notes that I love, this little tiny quote. Hannah knew how to respond with grace or not respond at all. And remember I said I, I aim to be like Jacobin. In this for Hannah, I aim to be like her because there are so many times that my mouth opens in so many scenarios where I'm like, I should have kept that one shut. I should have not said anything. Ask Matthew, I can be quick and I could cut someone down. And that's not an, an characteristic, an attribute about myself that I'm super fond of. But Hannah knew how to respond with grace or not at all. And Hannah showed unmatched restraint with her words. She not only knew the right things to say, she knew when to not say anything. And for years, Penina just nagged and nagged and nagged and nagged, like, I know with kids, not you. I know with kids, not you. And she ridiculed Hannah for her infertility. And yet, instead of responding to her tormentor, she kept her mouth shut. And how many times in life can we say that when someone's tormenting us, we keep our mouth shut rather than, you know, barking something back? Um, during one of the, fam the family annual trips, um, Hannah just had enough of the ridicule. Uh, she left the dinner table and wept and straight to God with her plea. Penina was jealous of Hannah. Even though she had um, Elkanah's kids, you know, and she could claim that, like, hey, I have offspring from, 
from our husband and you don't, she still was jealous because she saw the love that he had for Hannah. Um, her, uh, verse 8, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? I laugh at this because I don't know if it's just a man thing. Um, you know, like, hello, you have me. You don't need 10 sons because of me. And I don't think what Elkanah was realizing was he had already what Hannah did not. He already had the kids. And here Hannah's like, I want kids. I want them with you. And so it was easy for him to say, well, hello, I'm better than 10 sons. Hello, you know. Um, Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, a promise, a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Not just partial, not just a 20-year Levite thing, all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. So Samuel, who in the, we're going to get there, was born, but they came from the Levite tribe. And in that, you're dedicated to the Lord, but you do your service typically from the age of 30 to 50. And then there's the Nazarites who dedicate their lives a lot longer. And here she's not even from that. And she's like, if you give me a son, he will be with you all his days not just for a portion. Uh, Verse 12. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. She said, may your servant find favors in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. In verse 21, when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice, to remember, at the Shiloh, to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord and will give him live." Um, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she weaned him. Verse 24, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an 
Ephah, and a flower and skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord of Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought boy to Eli and said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord hath granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him the Lord to the Lord, for his whole life will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. In your um, notes, I have three little bullet points. And we know Hannah for her sorrow. She longed for a son, but couldn't have children. We know Hannah for her faithfulness. She never gave up hope that God would hear her prayer. She must have asked for a baby a thousand times. What are you asking for for a thousand times? Is there something that you're like, okay, I've asked and I've asked and I've asked. We also know Hannah for her sacrifice. She dedicated her baby Samuel to the Lord and left him at the temple to serve God all the days of his life. So here, she's probably asked a thousand times. She gets pregnant, has a baby, and there you go, Lord. If you asked for something for a thousand times and God granted that to you, would you keep your promise to give it back to him? Or would you hold on to it? For me, that was a, a strong woman that she was willing to give her firstborn, not knowing that she was going to even have any more sons. She doesn't get to raise him. I mean, after he's winged, that is. And here she's like, here you go. He's yours. Um, we may be dedicated to the Lord, but there's a greater dedication that God wants from us. Sorry. It would have been easy for Hannah to say, I don't need to dedicate my child to the Lord because he's already dedicated. But there was a deeper dedication the Lord was trying to draw out of Hannah. And there's a deeper dedication the Lord is trying to draw out of you. Do you find it hard to boldly and specifically ask God for something specific in prayer? And if you don't, what is what is stopping you from doing that? Um, I do have just a couple more facts about Hannah, and we're going to move on to Jochebed. But um, Eli, the priest, asked God to bless Hannah with more children. And she had um, three sons and two daughters after Samuel. So she got, not only did she give Samuel to the Lord, but God blessed her five more times. That would be crazy for me. I'd be like, no, 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 no. I'm good with two. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to Jochebed. Um, I have down on your notes um, brave, the definition of brave, and that's ready to face and endure danger or pain, showing courage. And like I said, Jochebed is just someone that I've always just been drawn to, her story just, I thought she was a crazy woman putting her baby in a basket with crocodiles in the river and sending him down like, all right, there you go, after holding on to him for three months. But she is someone that is, is brave and something that I aim to be. And I do have a personal story about being brave and courageous, strong and courageous, Joshua 1.9, that the Lord asks for us to be. Um, it's something that happened probably about six months ago. I never 
put it on social media. I really have not talked about it publicly. Um, a few of you know in smaller circles I've told the story, but I remember when this was happening, in the middle of it, this verse, Joshua 1.9, popped up. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And this is not a, I'm sorry, but this is not a Mother's Day, like, happy feel-go-lucky kind of story. But it is all about being brave and courageous, something that sometimes in life you're put into a situation where you're like, it happens like that, and you, there is no, like, mm, am I going to do this today? Or, you know, am I going to be brave? Sometimes we get to choose to be courageous. Sometimes you're forced into it, and in this situation, I was, and I'm like, God, you, you better be with me, because you say you are. I need you to be with me. Um, six months ago, I'm one of five children. Um, I have an older sister, older brother, an older sister, and then two younger sisters, so I'm smack in the middle. Um, my little sister um, lives in Pennsylvania, and my older sister um, said, hey, would you want to go to Pennsylvania with me to visit my, our sister, Grace? Her name's Molly, the older one. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I haven't been yet. Um, she's been there almost three years, but I got pregnant with Nora, and I was high-risk pregnancy, so I couldn't fly. So my sisters were, like, going and doing trips. My parents were going to do trips, but I couldn't go see her because of being, I couldn't be on a plane. And then who wants to, like, bring a newborn on a plane after she's born? So I waited a while. So all of this to say, Molly says, hey, Nora's free. You know, we could take Nora. And it'll just be you and me, and we'll spend the week with Grace in Pennsylvania. I'm like, awesome. And she says, but when we leave, I really want to go to Baltimore. And I'm like, I, I'm sorry if anyone's from Baltimore. <laughs> um, but she had this crazy, like, whim, like, when we, when we book our tickets out, we're going to fly out of Baltimore because I really want to tour Baltimore. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Just make, here's my card. You buy the tickets, and we'll fly out of Baltimore. Um, Baltimore, actually, the inner, the water district part of Baltimore was actually beautiful, and I'm glad I went. But at first, I was like, I want to go to Baltimore. Now I really don't want to go to Baltimore with what happened. Um, so we, um, the trip's over with my sister. We go to Baltimore. We spend the night there. We tour the city. Um, we get to the airport in the morning. It's, again, it's just my older sister, Molly, Nora, and I. And um, because we have Nora, we're able to board the plane first. And, um, you know, we're waiting for the ticket lady to, like, get ready to take all the tickets. And so Molly and I were first in line with Nora, ready to get on the plane, packed, packed plane. I mean, they're saying that it's just so, it's overbooked and all of that. And we're standing there, and my sister leans into me, and she goes, don't look now, but there's a man who's standing along the wall and I don't like him. And I'm like, Molly, ah, oh. you know, like, don't do that to me. And she goes, and I have a feeling he's on this flight, and there's something about him. I don't like him. And she goes, so look in about two minutes. And I'm holding Nora, and we're ready to, like, get our ticket to go on. And so I casually, like, just kind of doing this, rocking Nora, and I look, and I see the man and he's probably like in his mid-20s, and he's looking into the crowd soulless. I mean, that was the only description I have of this man. There was like no life to his eyes. There was just, there was no expression. And I turned around and I said, Molly, I swear I'm going to kill you. Then I'm now going on a flight for six hours. 
and now I'm creeped out by this man. So we get on the plane, Molly and I are the first ones on, we sit down and this couple walks by and says, hey, I, we were kind of sitting over by you um, while we were waiting and one of you left your backpack out in the airport. Um, it's a heart backpack and my sister goes, oh, that's mine, that's mine. And I'm like, all right, well, go have fun while everyone's coming on and you're like doing this down the plane, you know. Go have fun, go get it, Molly and her iPad was in there, her cell phone, her wallet, that was like her purse. So she's jamming out of the plane and I'm sitting there, we only got two seats, so I'm holding Nora in my lap. And I'm like, I'm gonna wait and see where this man ends up on the plane. And um, so, like I said, we have two seats, middle of the plane, my sister has the window, I have the middle, and then the seat next to me is open. And I'm waiting for this man to come on. And I'm like, all right, where is he, where is he? And I see him come on, and he's coming closer and closer. And I'm like, oh, dear. He's going to sit right next to me. Great. Well, he doesn't end up sitting right next to me. He sits in the row in front of me against the window. So I'm middle seat, and he's the window seat. And there's a gap about this big in between the seats. And I'm, my heart's racing, and I'm like, oh, here he is, here he is, here he is for six hours. He's right in front of us. And I'm like, you know what? It's nothing. You know, it's totally fine. We're good. But then all the uh, compartments, you know, up top are all open, waiting for people to put their luggage in. And again, so remember this gap. This gap is like what saved my life, is <laughs> this gap. And... I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at him through his gap, and he has his phone in his hand. Well, he slinks, sinks, sinks down into his seat, and above on the left-hand side are all the oxygen tanks. And he sits down, and he starts taking pictures of the oxygen tanks at different angles. And I'm like, what the heck is he doing? Like, I'm not taking pictures of oxygen tanks. And the lady next to, behind me isn't taking pictures of the oxygen tanks. Why? Like, why is he taking pictures of the oxygen tank? So as people are flooding the plane, sitting down, and he's taking a whole bunch of pictures, probably took 20 different pictures of the tanks. And my sister, I see my sister, and she's coming down, she's coming closer, and there's that gap, and I'm looking at him, and in his picture index, he's swiping through all his oxygen tanks, and then hits a picture of 9-11, of the plane going into one of the World Trade um, Towers. And I was like, huh, okay, so we have oxygen tanks and we have a picture of 9-11. And then the next picture over was, I know you guys are going shooting, but to me, I'm like, guns, guns. But he had, it was a table and there was all these guns. Couldn't even tell you, there, maybe there was a 12 gauge on there. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. AK-47, those are my guns. Um, they were all on the table and so I'm like, okay, why, why the pictures of oxygen tanks and, and you know, the, the plane blowing up at the World Trade Center and, and guns? And then my sister had now reached to my point, and she's climbing over me, and she sees the picture of the guns and the oxygen tank, but she never saw the World Trade Center, only I did, and sits down, and she looks at me, and she goes, lovely. Like, this guy's in front of us, and she missed all of it. So we're sitting there, and again, there's a gap. And I notice that he grabs all the pictures of the oxygen tanks and hits them, selects them, and he puts it in a message to someone. 
and in the message, and I saw what he was doing. He was about ready to text it, and I literally, my face was like up to the crack <laughs> to see what he's going to put, and he put bomb is in the handbag. They just shut the plane door. Everyone's sitting. Captain's door is shut, and we're ready to take off. And Molly didn't see it. And I, like, my legs were like rubber. And I'm like, okay, we're going to blow up in midair. You, me, and Nora, like, what's, oh, I can't believe this is going to happen. And, you know, in my head, I always heard, like, when a plane door shut, it's shut. They can't reopen it. And I'm, like, thinking all this stuff. And do I even say anything? So I told Molly, I had Nora, and I put her in, in uh, Molly's lap, and I said, we're getting off this plane. And she's like, what did you see? I'm like, I can't talk about it, but we're getting off this plane. So I run to the back, so we're a middle plane. I run to the back where the beverages are, and poor man who I slammed my face in, or my hand in his face, because my legs were rubber, and I was trying to hold on to all the backings of the chairs, and I literally just went, <clears throat> and this guy's glasses were everywhere. And <laughs> so I get to the back, and I said, ma'am, the man in 1918E, he has a bomb in his handbag, and I want off this plane. And she's like, hold, hold up. And then I thought, because of um, Meet the Falkers, and you can't say bomb in a plane. And I'm like, and I just said bomb in a plane, and I'm going to, like, get arrested. You know, I'm, like, thinking all these things. But so I just said I want off this plane. He, I saw the text. He said that there's a bomb in the handbag. And she's like, hold on. You stay right here. And I'm literally holding on to walls like this because I'm sliding down. I couldn't feel my legs. I watch her run to the captain's door. I watch all the stewardess all meet there captain comes out they're talking she comes and she gets me and this cute lady ends up sitting next to me and she comes to me and says we're getting you off the plane she i um go to my sister and nora and i said hey we're we're getting off and the sweet lady next to me says oh honey i have a fear of flying too <laughs> you know like this is you're okay and i'm like no no, no. i didn't want to alarm him you know, like, hey, I saw what you said, and then him delete, push a trigger, whatever. And so I just said, you know, I just can't fly today. I really need to get off the plane. I just, I thought I could do it, but I just can't. And so the, they got me off with my daughter and Molly. Captain comes running up to me. Carmat, is that the, the like, walkway? Yeah. So we're walking up, it, up that, and the captain comes up to me, grabs my elbow, and says, thank you. He goes, I have three sons at home. And he goes, and I believe you. So we get off, and I'm not exaggerating when I say FBI, Homeland Security, head of TSA, and the head of the police, airport police, were all waiting for me. And I had to do four, five-minute personal interviews. They wanted to make sure that my story, I guess, matched up or whatever. But for 20 minutes, while those 220 people were sitting on the plane, I got interviewed by each department. And then they moved me to a certain section of the airport where I could see everyone, like where, where I came into the, to the plane. And they, they said, we're about ready to pull off the men, the man. So they brought these two burly looking guys onto the plane. And while they pulled him off, they kind of hid me behind a wall and took him to interrogation, had all of his stuff. And 
so where I was where I was sitting was kind of hidden from everything, and I'm sitting with Homeland Security and FBI, and there's more and more and more men coming. I think at one point I counted 32 men and one woman standing in a circle, and they're like, so what do we do? Do we um, pull everyone off the plane and tell them that there's been a bomb threat? Do we bring the bomb dogs on the plane while everyone's on the plane, and then it's gonna cause mass hysteria? Do we pull everyone off the plane with all of their stuff and have the dogs sniff each person as they come out, and then we bring the dogs on? So I'm just bawling. I'm just crying because I'm like, oh, I know, I, I know what I saw, but did I really see that? Now 200, 220 people are getting off the plane, and it takes forever just to get them on. And they ended up doing the third scenario where they, everyone had to come off with all of their stuff. They brought seven dogs, and I'm sitting now in a certain spot where I could see every single person coming off, and women are crying, and men, like our, you know, one guy was yelling at them, like, what's going on? I want answers now, and, you know, they, they, they pushed all the chairs down and made this huge barricade section, and they had five people or five or ten people come off the plane at a time, and the dogs were walking around. They're like, put your hands up when you're done and get down to the end and stand. No sitting. And they did that for 220 people. And I'm just watching like, oh, did I see what I saw? You know, was I, was I brave? Was I not? You know, God calls us to be strong and courageous. And I, I knew like, okay. I had to get those people off the plane. I had to get that man off the plane. And so all of this happened, and about maybe half hour later, after the plane was cleared, dogs went in the plane, in the belly of the plane. Um, a man from FBI came and sat with me, and he goes, Sheila, he says, um, I'm not going to get into stuff with you. Um, I don't know if it's under investigation or they're not including me. I had to write a written statement. The captain had to write a written statement. He said, but what happened in the air for Pennsylvania um, that landed in the field on 9-11, he said there was heroes on that plane that day, but unfortunately they didn't make it. And he's like, I'm letting you know that you are a hero today on ground. And he goes, and that's the only thing I could tell you. And he's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he got up and walked away and I never saw that guy again. And um, they were ready to let everyone back on the plane and we were gonna do it, we were gonna fly. And um, they were now loading everyone, like 10 minutes at a, there were 10 people at a time, police were escorting them onto the plane. And um, they came to me, the original, guys that interviewed me and said, Sheila, get on the plane. And I said, no way. I am not getting on that plane. And they said, get on. And I said, nope, I'm, I'm good. I'll take the next flight. And they're like, the next flight's at 10 o'clock tonight. It's 8 in the morning. And I said, I'm good. I'll, I'll do the 10 o'clock. And he's like, nope, you're getting on the plane. And I go, what if one of those dogs missed something? And they just lost it laughing. Like, Sheila, there were seven of them. They're, they don't miss like, you're good. Get on the plane. So I called my sister. She took Nora to a playground. I said, hey, guess what? They're telling us to get on the plane. And Molly's like, no, 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 no. I am not getting on that plane. 
And yeah, they, they had escorted the guy off, and he's not back on. And so I'm like, all right, we'll do it. And so my sister comes back. Everyone's loaded and ready to go. I had to go to the bathroom so bad. I said, before I get on the plane, can I just go to the bathroom? Because I don't want to go in the, in the plane, and it's so tiny. And so I said, if they've already waited this long, can you just wait like five more minutes? <laughs> so we um, uh, were ready to get on, and they all escorted us on, and we're at the 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 door, the door of the plane, and the captain walks out and gets on his intercom and says to the whole plane, like the, what the stewardess used, gets in the middle of the aisle and says, um, today someone saw something and was brave enough to report it, say something. And, um, you know, as you know, we all got off this plane and we're all back on. And I know some of you are probably nervous and afraid to fly this plane. He goes, but I have three sons at home, and I'm ready to go see them. And if I didn't feel that this plane wasn't safe, I would not be flying this plane. And he said, and even the two gals that saw something and reported it, they're even getting on the plane, and here they are, and just did this. <laughs> and Molly, it was so funny. I had Nora, I was holding her so she couldn't. I had to look up, but Molly didn't have a kid to hold and watch where she was going, so Molly's like this. <laughs> and I'm holding Nora, and like people are grabbing out at me going, you saved my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it was just emotional. Um, you know, I, I lay in bed at night, and I'm like, did that even happen? Like, no, that didn't happen. But talk about being strong and courageous. And sometimes in life, you're thrown into a scenario like that, that just because I knew God was on my side, it was like, okay, let's go. So that quote, or the definition, ready to face and endure danger or pain, showing courage. So Jacobin, she was the mother who had trust in God. We know Jacobin for her plan and her endurance. A little back history for um, this story. Uh, the people of Israel had been slaves in the land of Egypt for a long time, like 400 years. Um, the Pharaoh in the opening of the book of Exodus was afraid of the Jews because there were so many of them, right, uh, fearing that they were going to overpopulate and take over and form an army against the Egyptians and start a rebellion. Um, he ordered all male Hebrews to be killed and to be thrown into the river and put to death as soon as the child was born. And during this time, Moses was born. So now we're going into this just happened and Jochebed's pregnant with Moses and she's about ready to have Moses. And here we go. So again, um, we are in um, the NLT. We are in Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Birth of Moses. About this time, a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby 
and kept him hidden for three months. I want to pause right there, and I laugh because when I read special baby, I'm like, well, what mom doesn't think that their baby is special <laughs> when he or she is born? And I'm like, oh, okay, so he was a special baby. Well, mine were special too, you know, like, and I looked into it, and um, a lot of Bible scholars say that when there's that text, it means that quite possibly it was a painless birth. It was a quiet birth. And how interesting that that's what that is possibly meaning, that he was a special baby. So because no one knew that, that she brought him into the world, there was no noise. You know, you probably have soldiers walking around looking to kill the Hebrew babies. And she had a very quiet, painless birth and was able to hold on to him for three months. Um, verse three, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. So literally, the Pharaoh had asked that all Hebrew babies be killed and put into the river, and what did she do? She did it. She was obedient. She put her baby in the river, but not obviously killing him. Um, a man by the name of Benjamin Barton wrote this about Moses' mother, keeping Moses uh, for as long as she did. The thought that she was going to lose her child must have produced a great deal of mental agony. Day after day, the thought must have passed, uh, pressed upon her heart. Possibly well, this will be the last day I will have my little one. Possibly today he will be discovered and put to death. On hot days, she may have kept her doors and windows closed, among suffocating herself for fear someone might hear the child cry and being discovered, his life might be taken. She must have been almost frantic sometimes when she heard this, a step outside for fear it was a soldier coming to search the house and finding that the child um, was there and casting the sword through it. Verse 4. The baby sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw that the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to send, get it out for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. This baby and nurse, uh, this, take this baby and nurse him for me. The princess told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. So in God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter finds baby Moses, hires Moses' own mother to care for him, and now is protected, isn't going to be killed in a sword through his heart. And she's getting paid for it. <laughs> Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of water. Moses' name means to pull out, to draw out. And my question to you is, what is something that you need to put in that basket and just push it down the river? It could be your past. It could be your present. It could be your job, your kids, 
your anxiety, your fear, but something for all of us, I will guarantee, something needs to go in a basket and be gone and pushed away and trust that God's like, I got this. I'm going to pay you for it. <laughs> I mean, in literal sense, just like, like Jochebed was paid to care for her own child because she was willing to put that baby that she so loved and was so special to put him in a basket and push him down the river. Chris, can I have you? Um, okay. I, I find it interesting between the two stories that God wants to draw something out of us from Jochebed, even in Moses' name, you know, to draw out, to pull out. And then in Hannah, what is God drawing out of you of your prayer life? What do you need to pray for that you're like, I know, and again, I will guarantee that almost all of us have that something that we, the specific that we are praying for. And, you know, um, real quick, I, I have spoke on Jochebed before. Um, like I said, for those that don't know Matthew and I really well, we do have a 13-year-old daughter, but we had many loss in between. And I remember speaking um, on Jochebed before, and that month before I spoke, Matthew and I fasted for a whole month. Like, okay, are we going to try one more time for a baby? One more time. And so it was a, that whole month of um, March that we fasted. And in April, I spoke a little bit on Jochebed, not even knowing I was pregnant. And for me, my infertility is what I put in a basket. That's what I asked the Lord, just take it. Because obviously, this isn't happening on Matthew and I on our own accord. But really evaluate to yourselves what it is that you need to just get rid of. Because God has something super special and awesome for you. Can we all close with your eyes? I know that um, for a lot of us, there's just things that just don't go our way. But I just want to ask, while all the eyes are closed in this room, if there is something that you are willing to put in that basket today, could you raise your hand? And second, with all eyes closed, if what you need to put in that basket is your life, because you've never asked him into your heart, and you want to be one of his and in heaven with him someday. If that's you and you want to accept Jesus today, raise your hand.
we just pray this prayer in our heads. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for me and my sins and rose from the dead. I trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Guide my life and help me to do your will. Help me, Lord, to just give you everything and to put it in the basket and to boldly and be specific in asking you, Lord, what to do with my life. In Jesus' name, amen.